Hello and welcome to episode six of Buddhish, a new kind of episode where it's unscripted and unbounded and can be about lots of different topics. And this one's going to be about the recent news in which the Japanese former prime minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated during a campaign speech in Nara City in southern Japan. I want to take a moment to to make sure, make clear. Uh, we really intended Buddhish to be about fun episodes, but then the world started exploding over and over again. So hopefully after this episode, we can step back into more fun topics for this show. But uh, for now, we need to talk about this while it's still fresh on folks' minds, I think. So yeah, go for it. I think it's important to talk about this topic because this might be a lot of Westerners' entry point into Japanese politics and news. And um, while that's not something that we talk about a lot on regular Bright on Buddhism episodes, it's still related to and still important for what I study and uh, what people who study East Asian languages and cultures here at the university and just people who study Asian stuff in general know about, right? It's something that we are often called on to teach about. It's something that we're often called on to know about and keep up with, even if it's not specifically our specialty. And so because of that, um, I've been plugged into a lot of Japanese language news sources, and um, I've been able to kind of see this develop both in Japanese language from their news sources that are a lot closer to the scene. And also, I've been able to see it, of course, develop on Western headlines from sources that we're familiar with, like CNN and New York Times and whatever else. And so, I wanted to talk about this because it's a good entry point to understand the Japanese political ecosystem. And it's a good entry point to understand Japanese gun laws and gun regulations. And it's a good time to talk about who Shinzo Abe actually was and what his influence on the government and on Japanese society was during his tenure as prime minister and uh, during his tenure as the president of one of the political parties that exists in Japan. So to start out with, um, I wanted to comment a little bit about Japanese political attacks. Um, there's been over a dozen politically motivated attacks by Japanese people on Japanese politicians in about the last 100 years. Some sources will say there's been 15, some will say there's been about 12, some will say there's been 16, uh, because obviously it's difficult to really lay down what is and is not a politically motivated attack whenever the attacker or the victim, uh, they kind of die and you can't ask them any questions. Or when it's something that is riding the line between being politically motivated and some other type of motivation. Uh, however, that all being said, this attack on Japanese former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is the first assassination of a former Prime Minister that's occurred in Japan since 1936. It's been since then that any former Prime Minister, sitting or not, right, has been attacked or assassinated in this way. And so, as you will have seen, the assassination took place while Shinzo Abe was campaigning for a Liberal Democratic Party politician who was campaigning for a seat in Japan. And the assassin had made a homemade gun and shot him twice, once in the back. And then when Shinzo Abe turned around to see what was going on, 
He got shot again in the front, and um, he died several hours later due to what they say is blood loss because the projectile um, nicked his heart and nicked some important arteries, and he lost a lot of blood. Um, this is something that is completely foreign to Westerners, the fact that gun violence is occurring with a homemade gun. And the reason why that's probably pretty foreign is because in America, there is hardly any restriction on access to guns. But in Japan, gun laws are incredibly strict. Gun laws are much, much more intense and strict and tightly regulated than in the United States. Um, one of the statistics that I have read and been reading is that in 2021, there were only 10 incidences of gun violence in Japan at all. And there's only one case where it resulted in death, right? One fatality out of those 10 incidences. And of course, only four injuries um, total from that whole range of crimes. And that's related very closely to Japanese gun regulations, right? Because in the United States, we've had more mass shootings this year than we've had days in the year, right? None of these incidences were even mass shootings, right? Because the definition, the definition of a mass shooting is a, a shooting in which more than like three or four people die at one time. In no cases of any of these incidences of gun violence did more than one person die at a time. So these aren't even mass shootings, right? And that just speaks to how tightly controlled guns are over there. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the law that regulates firearm use, possession, etc. Um, and what the requirements are like, just so that we can see just how different it is over there compared to in the United States. So the law that um, regulates gun possession is called the Firearm and Sword Possession Control Law. Um, this is kind of like a, a revised edition of an earlier law from the 1800s, which regulated sword possession. Um, I won't get into the history and politics about what, you know, the, the hunt, or you might say the crackdown that took place on the possession and carrying of swords, but this firearm and sword possession control law kind of lumped swords and guns in together. And um, it came about in the late 1950s, and in short, it requires a very complex and rigorous regiment of examinations, background checks, trainings, and other types of gov government oversight in order to be able to obtain and own a gun. You have to undergo a lot of safety classes, which of course include maintenance and loading and unloading and um, firing and storing firearms. And um, if you don't complete those classes and pass those background checks and pass those examinations, then you just can't have a gun. Um, this law also tightly regulates which types of guns can be accessed by people from various pr professions. So nobody in Japan, not any of the 125 million people that live there, can buy handguns or rifles unless they are part of the military self-defense force or the police. Hunters may only have shotguns, right? So that means that there are no concealed carry, open carry, there's no any no kinds of laws that we might be familiar with regarding guns and the general public in Japan because there is no quote unquote second amendment in their constitution. Guns are completely outlawed. It is not a constitutional right to have a gun in Japan. And therefore, 
it's so tightly regulated that there's even parties in the past that have decided that it might be better to just completely outlaw guns for anybody except for military and police to the point where hunters could not buy shotguns and the general public could not buy handguns or rifles. And um, of course, the response to that has always been um, then people wouldn't be able to eat if they lived in rural areas because they survive off of hunting and stuff like that. And um, then the conservationists come in and say, well, you shouldn't be hunting. That's, that's not really sustainable. That's not a good way to live. There's animals that need to be preserved and protected on the archipelago. We can't let that happen. That debate is still ongoing. Um, but it just speaks to the fact that this is an entirely different conversation that they're having in the Japanese public compared to any type of conversation we would be having in the United States because this is not part of their constitution. Uh, this law also regulates the amount of purchased versus stored slash used ammo. Um, and it makes it so that that amount is regulated and monitored by the police. So if you happen to pass all of these exams and all of these classes and background checks and such, then after that, you have to be subject to periodic and random searches by the police where they will come to your house and they will count how much ammo you've bought versus how much you've used versus how much you have. So you buy a box of 100 rounds and you bring it home. And, you know, let's say that you're just doing this for leisure. You're going to target practice. You report to the police, I have used 20 rounds for target practice since I bought these 100 rounds. And if they see anything less than 80 rounds, the remaining 80 rounds in your house or in storage, then you get in big trouble because that means that you've sold them. That means you've distributed them. That means that you don't have them. You're hiding them. That means something is really wrong. And that's not something that they would ever take lightly, right? Because most of the gun violence and most of the gun ownership, possession, distribution that happens in Japan happens around organized crime groups like the Yakuza. So you remember I mentioned that there were only 10 incidences of gun violence in Japan in 2021. I think that I read somewhere that eight of those were related to organized crime syndicates who were exacting that gun violence either on each other or they were selling, distributing, running guns, something like that. So in that regard, even organized criminal gun possession and gun violence only happens in the realm of less than 10 times per year. So let's just think about that as Americans for a while. It's so illegal to get these guns in Japan. And also, they're not, quote unquote, finding ways to get guns, as you might hear conservative talking heads say, right? They say you can't institute gun control laws because people will find a way to get guns. The data show that they don't, right? However, this assassin used a homemade gun, right? And so in order to understand what's going on with Shinzo Abe and this assassin, I wanted to also talk a little bit about Shinzo Abe's politics and how politics work in general in Japan currently. This will be very broad strokes and, of course, we'll include resources for you to look at um, in the show notes to get more information about this sort of thing. So a little bit about Shinzo Abe and his politics. Shinzo Abe has been the president of the LDP, or the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan, which is the uh, most powerful political party in Japan at this time. They currently hold the most seats 
in the Japanese diet or the Japanese, the Japanese parliament, you might say. And um, during his time as president, so as president of this party, he has served um, as the prime minister uh, for, I think, two or three terms. He's ultimately become the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history for as long as there have been prime ministers. And um, in that regard, he's very influential in the party. He's very influential in Japanese society. Um, a little bit about what the party stands for. The LDP, contrary to what Americans might associate with their name, they're actually not very leftist, even though liberal Democrat makes it sound like they are. They're actually a very populist conservative group in Japan. Um, and of course, there's a range and a spectrum of political views on there. And of course, you know, American conservative is a different sort of label from Japanese conservative. But um, I think that we can sort some of that out here. So in the United States, it seems like now conservative parties, the GOP and even further right than the GOP, they are kind of chaotic and just self-destructive. They are destructive towards the rights of people who are not white, straight, Christian men. They're destructive towards infrastructure, towards education. They're destructive towards healthcare. They want everything to be privatized and corporatized, and they want everything to be in the hands of the rich and wealthy. Um, this is not at all what things are like for you, what you might call the conservative wing in Japan. The the politics of the conservative wing in Japan actually will feel and sound like super, super liberal politics in the United States. For example, some of Shinzo Abe's platform topics were increasing infrastructure spending, increasing economic stimulus packages during the pandemic, increasing public spending in all kinds of different ways, right? He was a big, huge proponent for investing in Japan, in the Japanese public, in the Japanese workforce, in all kinds of different domains of the Japanese economy. Um, he was a huge, huge proponent of government spending, which is one of the conservative, American conservative talking points where they say the Democrats get everything wrong. They say that they even actually call American Democrats spendocrats, right? Because they think that too much government spending is bad somehow. So this is the conservative right wing in Japan, right? There's a range of political parties that serve in the Japanese parliament. Um, they don't just have a two-party system. They have a whole entire different um, election system that allows you to essentially elect a person rather than a party. So it could be a member of any sort of party who gets elected. And um, to that end, there's even now like communists and socialists and even some like anarcho-socialists who serve on who serve on the Japanese diet, the upper diet and the lower diet. And in that regard, um, they have a huge range of political opinions in their in, in their government, which leads to an entirely different discourse. Um, but we won't get into that too much. I also wanted to mention that Shinzo Abe was a member of the Nippon Kaigi. This is a religious far-right group of politicians in Japan, which has state Shinto connections. Um, there's a very large number of LDP politicians who are associated with this group. And I can't really think of an analogy for this kind of group in the United States. Um, it's religious, it's political, 
and it doesn't really do much of anything as an organization publicly, except for these people all hang out and share their views and they trade, you know, favors and money back and forth. Right. I mean, this, it's kind of like, I, I was going to say it's like a pack, but, um, a pack has a lot of regulations and has a lot of the public eye on it and has, um, a specific role in the American government system. And the Nippon Kaigi doesn't fall into that category very easily. Um, it's sort of shady <laughs> in the sense that you don't really know what the barrier of entry is. You don't know what the people do in it. You don't know how or why they're connected in the way that they are. Um, but it's definitely got some interesting state Shinto history that we can talk about in another episode. It sounds vaguely analogous to a Masonic Lodge. It's very similar to that. Yeah, it's extremely similar to something like that. Okay, that helps me figure out what these people are about then. Okay, cool. Absolutely. Well, not cool. It's These sound like shitty people, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, at least it helps us understand what's going on here. So, Shinzo Abe himself, while he was prime minister, and while he was in the public eye as a member of Nippon Kaigi, and as a member of LDP, and the, and the president of LDP, um, he has appeared in the media denying the existence and later downplaying even the coercion of comfort women during World War II. So this is something we haven't mentioned before, but the issue of the comfort women is that whenever Japanese military was colonizing in East Asia, in Korea, in China, in the South Pacific, they were known to um, basically engage in the practice of sex slavery, where they would capture uh, women in this in, in whatever place they were at, in China, Korea, the South Pacific, wherever, and those women would serve them as sex slaves. And obviously, um, there's not a lot of written record of this sort of thing, because um, very few people would say, and today I got myself a sex slave in a travel diary or in a military journal or anything that's official that we have to look at as historians today. Right, That's not something that you can really clearly see in the sources, but there are certain there are certain procedures and certain methods by which historians can sort of get the sketch of what this comfort women issue looked like from the military perspective, at least in the existence of the documents from the Japanese military. In addition to those documents, including accounting documents, including um, village rules and village um, census documents, that existed before the Japanese got there and afterwards. Um, in addition to that, you also have testimonies of descendants of these comfort women. Uh, the, there, there have been Japanese, there have been Japanese military people denying their existence, right? But um, since the war, some Korean women have come forward and said, "I have served as a comfort woman, or my mother or my grandmother has served as a comfort woman, and we want reparations." And Shinzo Abe has appeared in the media denying the existence of comfort women or downplaying the coercion, saying that these relationships were voluntary, um, that they were an economic transaction of some kind. However, there's no record of any comfort women ever being paid or fed by the Japanese military, and there's no record of any comfort women saying that they were paid or fed by the Japanese military. 
So it's not likely that they were paid or fed by the Japanese military, which would then make them employees of some kind rather than slaves, right? And of course, in addition to that, these women have come forward and said, we didn't consent to any of the sex part of the job, right? So even if they were paid for it, it was still rape. And there's been all kinds of controversy about about that sort of dimension of the comfort women issue in the media regarding Shinzo Abe. He's also denied the existence of Unit 731. Unit 731 was a particularly grisly unit of the Japanese military, which in World War II engaged in some really awful research on Chinese people during the time in which the Japanese military held the puppet state of Manchukuo, which is now known as uh, Manchuria. I want to put big quotation marks around that word research. Yeah, it's it's bordering on just like the most grisly abuse and the most grisly Nazi research, quote unquote, that you can think of. I mean, first of all, we're talking back in World War II. It is Nazi research. It's just Japanese Nazis, right? Like, they were yeah. part of the Axis. So, you know, they're still aligned. And, like, th- it was straight up torture. Like, there's not much, re- like, yeah, they took notes on it, but the purpose, like, the purpose might have been, you know, figure out what all these things, what all these horrible substances and extreme conditions and all that do. But, like, it was torture. And, uh, it was also, Research that eventually led into Project MK Ultra here in the United States. So yep. awesome. Like everybody sucks. Yeah, I should mention it's important to note that um the United States, just like with the Nazi researchers, they also cut deals with these Unit 731 researchers and later employed them, right? And sent them to doing the exact same thing they were doing before. Exactly. Right. And so um, denying the existence of Unit 731 is kind of um, short sighted (laughs) from the from the Japanese side, because the United States has very clear record and has been very open about about their employment and about their communications with people who served in 731. Um, And the deals they cut would be, you know, we will not we will not convict you for war crimes if you come and work for us and give us your information and your knowledge that you've gained from this torture. And if you allow us to employ you to torture others for our own ends and goals. So he denied the existence of 731. And all of this together plays into a larger effort that took place over his career to um, censor and rewrite Japan's role in World War II in a much more flattering light. Um, he never came out and said Japan did not do war crimes. Japan did not play an awful role in World War II, but he has tried to uh, do things such as censor history textbooks in Japan, causing bad relations with China. He has tried to um, paint the whole entire thing to not really make the Japanese military and Japanese society and Japanese culture and Japanese people and Japanese government look so bad. Um, and, and of course, that means drawing over the horrible and unforgivable reality that was experienced by people who were colonized by the Japanese. Um, and that's why the textbook censorship, for example, has inflamed relations between Japan and China, because China 
one of the victims of Japanese colonialism during World War II has a very recent and clear knowledge about um, their experience during this time period. We're not talking about something that happened a thousand years ago. Um, I've known people in my classes whose grandparents were victims of this, whose grandparents were alive and were victims of Japanese colonization in Manchuria. And um, I've even met people who are somewhat close to the massacre of Nanjing or the rape of Nanjing, um, which was essentially Japanese military members going to this town called Nanjing and killing upwards of, I think, 300,000 people in a day, just wiping that town off of the map, completely decimating the population there and doing this awful grisly stuff like using baby heads as soccer balls and impaling people on their bayonets and engaging in competitions with other soldiers to see how many you could kill. Um, this, of course, included a lot of rape and pillaging and other grisly stuff. And um, all of this has been drawn over and censored and has been attempted to be like erased from the history by Shinzo Abe and his government um, during his tenure. He's also come under fire um, during his prime ministership for making visits to religious sites that enshrine convicted war criminals. Um, one shrine in particular is called Yasukuni Shrine. Yasukuni translates to like safety of the country. And this is a state Shinto shrine, which enshrines like the, the nation of Japan. So it's already a nationalist site. And in that place, there are Japanese war criminals and, um, you know, like kamikaze pilots and uh, commanders who led campaigns in different parts of East Asia during the war who have been enshrined as gods in the Shinto religion um, at this place. And he's been seen making visits there to sort of make an offering to, you know, pay his homage to them. And um, if this wasn't already like a horrible thing to do, it would be as if like a German prime minister went and bowed down to um, bowed down to a shrine of Hitler, bowed down to a shrine of, you know, Hermann Goering or something like that. It also is just expressly prohibited in the Japanese constitution. And he just kind of disregarded that. There is a clear, very, very clear, much more clear than the United States, very clear clause in the Japanese constitution, which prohibits the interaction between church and state. Um, no public entity of any kind, like, and I say public to mean governmental entity of any kind, can sponsor or show favor or show any sort of closeness to any religious institution in Japan at all. There can be no money transactions. There can be no um, public relationship. There can be no any of that. And um, that was sort of violated by his visits to this shrine. Unfortunately, at the time, his visits to Yasukuni have often been compared to Obama's visits to Arlington. And um, while that is, I would say, kind of close, um, there, are, there are some major differences that need to be <laughs> sorted out, including, of course, the constitution issue, but also including the war criminal issue and including the sort of the purpose for the visit and what happens there, right? Um, it's sort of like a it's a very popular political move in the United States to show support for the military um, and for the deceased troops. They, they were protecting our freedom. It's not really quite 
the same in Japan. There's still a flavor of imperialism to it that is a little bit more fervent and a little bit more clear cut than the imperialism of the United States. Most people in the United States are not educated in their public education about the United States as an imperial power. Additionally, the United States and its imperial activities have taken a sort of different shape and flavor than Japan's imperial activities during the war. Um, what I mean by this is that the extent of America's colonization has been downplayed and has been sort of not taught, I wouldn't say erased, but certainly not taught in the American education system. I would say erased. Yeah. I mean, you never learn about the conquering of the nation of Hawaii and you never learn about yeah. the colonization of the Philippines or the the fact that, you know, up until 1972, Okinawa was American soil um, or anything like that. But I do think that that uh, information is available to people if they should want it. That's true. It is. Um, in Japan, what we are now thinking of as imperialism is not always regarded as imperialism. This actual like settler colonization or this puppet state colonization or this like invasion colonization that you see during the Second World War in Japan is not often thought of that way. Um, I won't get into the sort of cultural issues and social issues dealing with that, but it's important to note because these are sort of the issues that are at play when understanding the politics of Shinzo Abe. This has sent ripples across, you know, all nations of the world who had an opinion about Shinzo Abe. Um, among Western political leaders like the US President Joe Biden, like um, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, even former President Donald Trump, uh, French Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron, um, they've all come out publicly and, and said, this is a tragedy. We had such a high opinion of him. Uh, he had such a huge influence on um, G7, among G7 leaders, which he was a part of, and among the United Nations and you know all of the participations on the world stage that Shinzo Abe had as the leader of the Japanese government while he was the prime minister. Um, and this has all been very sad for them as well. And I think that regardless of one's opinions about his politics, um, this is shocking because especially in Japan, the political culture there is so, so, so different than the United States. Um, whenever politicians in Japan go campaigning around, they don't bring like, like bulletproof glass and secret service and all the stuff that U.S. presidential candidates or even like Congress candidates bring when they when they campaign, um, oftentimes what they will do is they will drive a van up to wherever they want to talk, and they will either get out like a milk crate, or they'll sometimes even just stand on top of the van, and that's it. They might have like a couple of bodyguards on either side, but they are meant to be very very close with the Japanese public. They will literally bring their own loudspeakers, their own megaphones, and speak into them and just give a speech. And in this case, he was actually in front of a train station, right? Just in front of a train station in Nara, giving a campaign speech, endorsing another candidate who was running for office. And 
I think that now that that's going to change in a huge, huge way, right? Um, very few other nations, other countries do that, right? There's, I can't think of any other situation, and I can't even imagine a situation in the United States where a presidential candidate would walk around without like loads of bodyguards and give speeches without bulletproof glass and all these things to prevent assassination, all these things to prevent violence and, you know, some other sort of injury or harm intended onto the politician. Um, politicians in Japan, like, in, in fact, some of the people who were traveling with Shinzo Abe were seen taking photos with strangers while Shinzo Abe was giving his speech, right, before he got shot. Um, this, there's a very close relationship between the public and these politicians that I think, unfortunately, because of the actions of the assassin, Tetsuya Yamagami, they're going to be destroyed. These relationships are going to be dissolved. And unfortunately, it looks like in the future, there's probably going to be a lot more distance between the political candidates and the Japanese public, both in campaigning, but also once they have a seat, then also in their speeches and in their public appearances. Because this this was something that you never expect to see out of, out of out of a place like Japan, right? Because of their tight gun laws and because of this close political and social relationship that I was talking about. Um, so it's a very unfortunate event, regardless of Shinzo Abe's politics. And um, it, it's very lucky that the the assassin was found and arrested and detained. And I hope that all measures are taken in the future to take. To, to protect the safety of future politicians. And um, I hope that, you know, there's some way to crack down on the production and use of these homemade guns. Um, his gun shot batteries. And that's, that's just insane to me. Um, his, the gun shot batteries, I think, and the barrel was held together with duct tape. Yeah, I've seen a picture with the firearm included. It's very clearly improvised. Like, he made that from scratch, and you can tell he made it from scratch. Yeah, and, you know, of course, I hope this – I I hope it doesn't mean that you can't buy batteries. I I don't think it'll mean that you can't buy batteries or duct tape. But um, at the same time, you know, this is wild. This is not – this is completely out of left field for a lot of people. I mean, it's only a matter of time until 3D printed guns become a common thing. Like the, even without the, you know, duct tape, do it yourself level of it, production of off market guns is going to become a thing very soon. And I, yeah, we're not ready for it. That's very true. I forgot to mention that some of the parts of his gun were were 3D printed at home. And, um, that's dangerous. <laughs> um, and I don't think that the laws, I don't think that the regulations are able to catch up with the acceleration in technology in that way. Um, but I hope that something can be done. And one final note about this whole thing is that in the last couple of hours before we've sat down to record this, there have been headlines showing that popular Japanese video game creator and developer Hideo Kojima has been mistaken and misidentified as the assassin by some people on the internet. It appears to actually be people from 4chan. Like, that's where this appears to have come from. It's perhaps too early to tell for sure, but that the rumor is definitely circulating. Like, you can go to poll right now and see them uh, 
circulating photos that have been photoshopped in to include Hideo Kojima as the the assassin. So, like, it, it's pure internet bullshit, and it appears to be from the king of internet bullshit right now. So I don't... It, ugh, it's just weird. Yeah, it's it's really, really, like, the highest level of troll shit because it started as a joke, as I understand it. Someone said, this guy kind of looks like Hideo Kojima. And um, it got. With the mask on, sort of, kind of, maybe, but. Maybe, yeah. But then it got circulated enough that actually some French politicians. Um, this is what I saw is that some French politicians started retweeting the image and started kind of using this as a, um, as a means to advance their you know, right-wing politics. So there was a right Anti-video game bullshit or something? And that too, yeah. There was this French politician who retweeted like uh, something like the evil left is extremely powerful. So powerful it could even exact gun violence on right-wing politicians in Japan where there's no guns or something. Something, I don't even, I can't even understand. We should not be taking what right-wing people say seriously in the slightest. They are making shit up because it serves their narrative. That's it. Exactly. And they're not even using truthful... I mean, it's pictures of Hideo Kojima. (laughs) It's not even like... Is Metal Gear Solid the next, you know, like, liberal liberal propaganda? I I don't think so. (laughs) It was pretty liberal propaganda. I'm not gonna, like, you know... I played the games. Uh, They would not be kind to Trump. Let me put it that way. I just think that, you know, it also speaks to this um, particularly white issue. Um, yeah. Which is that, you know, the vast majority of people in the West are not culturally literate enough to be able to tell Asian people apart. Um, unfortunately, East Asian people are the victims of immense, immense racism, um, both implicit and explicit from people from white countries. And this is the latest example of, you know, someone simply did not understand that these two people are different. They thought that because they both looked Asian, they kind of looked the same and therefore were the same. And that's just, I can't even. Yeah. It's people being shitty. Yeah. Yeah. So make sure that you don't believe if you're listening to this, that Hideo Kojima did that, (laughs) that he did the assassination. Um, he did not. He just made a lot of really good video games. That guy is... De- he's also done a lot of publicity stunts, and finding some way to, you know, fake an assassination is not that far away from him, but actually doing it? No. Like, that guy... Like, Kojima's a prankster and an alter artist sort of guy. He's not going to actually do this kind of thing. And I don't think he would joke about it either. On this point, at least. Like, when he makes a joke, it's usually pretty obvious. Like, there was one point where he was trying to, you know, make a story that he had gotten in contact with somebody who's doing head transplants. Like, <laughs> Kojima, it, Kojima, you could usually tell when Kojima's being Kojima. Uh, this is not that. Yeah, this is... There is no relation between this assassination event and Kojima, except in the sense that some people on 4chan were either making a joke or they genuinely could not tell the difference. And here we are. 
you know, headlines yeah. an hour and 45 minutes old as of right now when I'm recording this saying, you know, high level, high level politicians in the West are misidentifying Kojima as the assassin. It's just ridiculous. We hope that you enjoyed our one-off Buddhist episode about the assassination of Japanese former prime minister Shinzo Abe. Um, Bright on Buddhism abhors all kinds of gun violence, homemade gun violence, politically motivated gun violence, or mental illness-related gun violence. All kinds of gun violence we say no to. Um, we hope to come back with some happier, more lighthearted, more distant from current news types of Buddhist episodes coming soon. Um, pending there's no terrible, awful headline that we feel we need to address between now and then. I mean, statistically, that's not a good hope these days. Unfortunately. Oh, well. Oh, well. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much.